Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever time you are tuning in. Welcome to Homesteading and Gardening in the Suburbs. I'm Emma from Misfit Gardening and today we're talking about planning your garden for seed saving. This is another mini training um, and this is straight from the Grey Own Food Academy, um, which the closing date is the 14th of March 2021. So if you want to be in, then um, you've got until midnight to, to join. Um, this is uh, really the only time that I'm opening it I only open this once a year and spaces are limited so make sure that you join um, there's a couple of spaces left and uh, the link to join is in the podcast description and there's a special offer in there for you but without further ado let's get started on planning your garden for seed saving because we're going to be talking about quite a lot so why we want to save seed what is seed saving types of seeds and um, also types of pollination that happen and methods to prevent the cross pollination and how we can kind of um, put it all together and things that we want to think about with our garden so let's let's get stuck in and um, because there's a lot to get through in today's episode so grab yourself a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or whatever's your poison and let's dig in and talk about why we want to save seed because there's lots of different re- reasons for us to save seed and the first one that comes to mind is saving money so seed saving is a really great way to save money i actually track the cost of seeds um because i'm weird um but i used to buy seeds about five years ago and it cost me a dollar 99 a packet now they're costing between two dollars 99 to three dollars 50 or more for a packet and um you know that's kind of crazy i mean seeds and plants well plants want to reproduce right they grow they reproduce and that's how we're able to save the seeds and knowing how to save seeds means that you can save them to grow year after year and not need to buy them year after year right that's kind of kind of cool and um some of the reasons why we might want to save seed are to be able to grow plants which continue to grow well in your garden um, preserving historical or heritage varieties grow plants of consistent quality or of produce or flowers um, and seed security so there are hundreds of amazing plant varieties that have been discontinued as the seed industry has changed and if you save your own seed however you then control the supply and you can be assured that your favorite variety is not going to be discontinued because you've saved the seed and saving seed is really freedom to grow and actively creating your future in the future of those that you love and some of the reasons that people often save seeds are to return to more traditional methods of gardening or farming and being able to maintain that genetic diversity in the food system or maintaining your own collection of unique fruits or vegetables and building your own seed banks there's lots of different reasons for us to be saving seed but what is seed saving Um, it is the process of harvesting mature seeds from open pollinated vegetables fruits flowers herbs and grains and historically gardeners and growers would save seed from their gardens and farms to sow the following year and many home gardeners would leave a a plant or two at the end of a row let it go to flower and then produce seeds and save those that was very natural to how we gardened and that's certainly how uh, we were taught in the UK um, <laughs> to save seeds and that's how my grandparents taught me was you know leave a few at the end of the row and then you'll save the seeds from those and then you've got seeds to grow um, the next year but let's talk a little bit about the types of seeds right because we there's different types of seed and we want to be making sure we're saving the, the right stuff so let's talk a little bit about heirloom seeds so um, heirloom seeds are a variety that dates back about 50 years or more they're often handed down for generations within a family or within a region like a geographical region um, often hand selected by gardeners for a special traits the traits might be things like color taste texture shape or size maybe it's something that produced fruit earlier and they live in a cold climate for example um, heirlooms are open pollinated um, usually without uh, human intervention and um, if the heirloom seed is pollinated with the same variety it will produce seeds that are true to type 
Now let's talk about open pollinated seeds. So these show varietal purity, produce offspring that are the same as the parent plant. Um, varieties are maintained by allowing the natural movement of pollen between plants of the same variety. So that might be by insect or by wind. Um, you know, open pollinated plants um, do not need to be heirlooms. You can have open pollinated varieties which are not heirloom. Um, but all heirlooms are open pollinated seeds. Let's talk about hybrids. Um, Hybrids are not GMO. They are not um, genetically modified organisms. They are not modified on a uh, DNA level using recumbent DNA techniques. Um, so please don't get the two muddled up. Um, hybrid seeds are produced by cross-pollinating two types of plants which have favorable traits. So those favorable traits may be things like disease resistance or that the plant produces fruit earlier or a more uniform shape. And um, they're usually uh, easy to tell if they are a hybrid. Um, you can tell by looking on the seed packet um, of a label or on a plant label um, or even in the catalogue or website description because it will usually say hybrid or F1 next to it. So read your seeds carefully, my friend, and uh, you will know if you have a hybrid or not. Um, hybrids do not reliably produce plants identical to the parent plant that seed was saved on. So what happens is that they cross-pollinate to parent plants and you have what's known as an F1 cross or the, the first cross. And when that seed grows out, you get all this weird and wonderful variability because as you're growing out, you're getting an F2. So you're getting the second generation um, that's happening. So you might get some that are like tall and skinny, some that are short and stout and all sorts of weird and wonderful things in between. So they're a really cool project for somebody if you're looking at um, doing some plant breeding and things like that, but they're not really great for a beginner gardener to be saving seed. You want to be sticking with your open pollinated plants. Now, cross-pollination is when pollen moves between different varieties within the same species. And... Um, Cross-pollinated seed isn't really ideal for seed saving if you're trying to preserve a variety, but it's great if you're trying to breed a new variety, right? Because that's how um, that breeding is going to happen. There's also plants that are self-pollinating. So plants that are able to be pollinated by their own pollen. Um, each flower usually pollinates itself and uh, they're super easy for new seed savers. Um, so that's, that's kind of one of the cool things um, about nature is there's a lot of diversity in how plants are pollinated. So let's talk a little bit about maintaining varietal purity um, and keeping seeds true to type because um, that's that's very keen uh, or key, sorry, when we are looking at saving seed, especially if we're trying to preserve a variety. So true to type is saving seeds from a particular plant variety that you can grow the next season to be identical to the parent plants. Okay, so true to type is also known as varietal purity. So let's say I've got San Marzano tomatoes and it pollinates with another San Marzano tomato. I'm going to get a San Marzano tomato when I grow that seed that was saved from that those two uh, plants pollinating. And this is how heirloom varieties of plants are preserved by ensuring that they are only pollinating with that same particular variety. And when it comes to maintaining seed purity, we really are talking about minimizing genetic changes. And we want to be minimizing them by understanding the plants that we're growing, knowing the environment and how the plants pollinate. Now, every time that you grow a plant variety, you are creating opportunities for genetic changes to happen. And this is normal, and this is part of how a natural ecosystem works. These changes in genetics are how we get new varieties, so don't be scared of them. Um, but to maintain that varietal purity, we need to understand the plants, understand what we're growing, what they're pollinating with, the environment that we're growing them in, other plants that might be in the area, and uh, 
that are potentially going to be a pollen source and cross-pollinate. So we need to know how the plants pollinate to be able to protect them from unwanted pollination. So let's talk a little bit about understanding the plants because um, taxonomy is actually really important. And you might remember um, the um, taxonomy or the the order of taxa um, in a biology or a science class. So domain, kingdom, phylum, classification, order, family, genus, species and variety. Um, so you might have had like a teacher who came up with silly, silly rhymes like um, dear King Philip came over for good soup. Uh, as a way to remember domain, kingdom, phylum, classification, order, family, genus, species and variety. Or there's keep pond clean or frogs get sick. That's quite a good one to remember. Um, or do kindly place cover on fresh green vegetables to remember. Again, domain would be do, kindly would be kingdom, uh, place would be phylum, cover would be classification, on would be order fresh would be family, green would be genus, spring would be species and variety would be vegetables, right? Luckily, we don't really need to know the full taxonomy of a plant. We just really need to know the genus and species and variety. Um, although if you're kind of really into botany, then kind of understanding a little bit more about um, the classifications and the phylums or the, the subclassifications. I think they've probably changed it a little bit since uh, me going to school. Um, you know, kind of gets you to understand a little bit more about, um, you know, the plant types that are there. But really, um, if we take an example of Long Island cheese pumpkin, uh, which is the family of Curcubita uh, ACA, it's the genus of Curcubita, the species is Moschata, and uh, the variety is Long Island cheese. Um, please forgive me if you are a uh, Latin buff. I have probably butchered every Latin word there. Um, they stopped doing Latin when, when I went to school. So it is not my forte. And I know that the microbiologists that I work with, they cringe every time I try to um, like talk about or um, ask about different uh, microbes. Um, I, I can see them uh, cringing right now. <laughs> Um, but let's talk a little bit about why it's important to understand the um, the taxonomy of our plants because plants that are in the same species will cross-pollinate. So let's take our Long Island cheese pumpkin, for example. It will cross-pollinate with other members of Curcubitum moschata. So Seminole pumpkin, for example, uh, butternut squashes, they're all part of that same species, so they will readily share pollen. Now, plants that are not in the same genus or species will not cross-pollinate. So the Long Island cheese pumpkin, I really want to call it the Long Island iced cheese. I'm obviously getting that confused with the Long Island iced tea, which apparently is what I really want <laughs> right now. Um, but the Long Island cheese pumpkin, I've got to be very intentional saying that now, um, it will not cross-pollinate with a zucchini plant or a spaghetti squash or an acorn squash because they're members of the Curcubita pepo species. Now, knowing your genus and species will help you to put measures in place um, to make sure that you don't have an accidental crossing. But it's also important to um, check common names of plants to make sure that we know what they really are. So for example, an Armenian cucumber, that's a common name for a member of the melon family. So it's actually a melon, not a cucumber. So if we're trying to um, grow multiple melons, for example, but we're growing an Armenian cucumber and we thought that it was a cucumber, then it might actually cross pollinate with a member of a melon that we're also growing. Now, sometimes weeds or ornamental plants can be the same same genus and species as your edible plant. So carrots, for example, like domesticated carrots that we eat can cross pollinate with Queen Anne's lace or wild carrots, which mean that the carrots that you grow from that crossed seed potentially 
will be woody they'll be white in color and they will be bitter and inedible so usually if you've been growing orange carrots and you've saved the seed and grown it out again and you pull up a white carrot it's almost a dead giveaway that it has been cross-pollinated by a wild carrot or queen's queen anne's lace that's been growing nearby so if you're wanting to dabble in things like plant breeding then knowing what's going to cross-pollinate is really useful to be able to like create your own variety but knowing this also means that you can um, know what you're going to need to take extra care in maintaining that varietal purity if you want to keep um, your seeds the same variety now squash is pretty cool because there's four different types of squash so you could grow four different squash species which are all going to be different varieties and none of them are going to cross pollinate with each other which is really handy to know if you're trying to do some seed saving and you don't want to sacrifice only growing one variety now some plants um do like to grow and cross pollen very readily and it is the brassica family um in particular the brassica rolleraceae um so let's take uh, kale cavolo nero as an example um they love to cross pollinate with other members of the uh, Brascarolaraceae family so that would include broccoli, um, cauliflower, cabbage um, but also other um, members of the same genus and species which include Brussels sprouts and kohlrabi so they'll quite readily uh, cross pollinate with all of those and if we're just trying to keep the Cavalonero uh, kale as Cavalonero kale then we need to be extra cautious that we don't have let's say um, uh, Brussels sprouts, Catskills Brussels sprouts that are flowering at the same time um, as our Cavallo Nero kale that we're trying to save seed from because it's readily going to cross pollinate. Now, if you want to find the genus and the species, there's a couple of places that you can look. The first place would be the seed packet because if you're buying seed here in the US, it's actually a requirement that they put um, the variety on there. So um, definitely check that out. You can also look on the USDA plants database which is super handy there's a little like classification search section that you can do and you can type in a common name like cabbage and it'll plonk out the full you know domain kingdom phylum all that good stuff um so you can um take a look and you can know um what it is you can also do an internet search that's uh, also an easy way to, to do it to try and find it out that way now let's talk a little bit about knowing your local environment because um, when you're planning a garden for seed saving you need to know what grows nearby it's not just your garden when it comes to seed saving but what are other neighbors growing what are the pollen sources nearby and when does that pollen happen so let's say um, that you you live somewhere that's growing a lot of corn so let's say you're in I don't know Iowa or Nebraska but you've got this beautiful heirloom corn plant um, that you got in a seed swap and you really want to save seed from it and you're going to want to know that there's corn growing nearby so you can think about how to isolate it from from the corn that your nearby farmers growing so you want to be considering things like are there any fields growing plants that you are too um is there um any neighbors that are growing similar plants um maybe maybe your neighbors next door they're growing zucchini and you've got some beautiful patty pan summer squashes that you really want to save seed from um you might want to consider hand pollinating those and protecting the flowers rather than letting the bees do the job because they might have already visited your neighbor's zucchini flowers um which is why she keeps leaving them on your doorstep um before the <laughs> the bees are visiting your patty pan squashes so you might want to think about that um think about if your plants are flowering at the same time so in the example of you know your next door neighbor's zucchini and your patty pan summer squash they're probably going to be flowering at the same time um but there's plenty of plants that are flowering at different times and you can have early mid or late varieties so you can start to use um some cool isolation techniques to um, minimize the risk of that cross-pollination 
location. You also want to be considerate about local weeds that are relatives. Um, I mentioned about the carrot and the queen Queen Anne's lace. That's a, a common um, a weed relative, um, but there's actually quite a few uh, common weed re relatives. Um, chicory is another relative. And if you are growing domesticated chicory, then you would want to know if there's like a weed chicory growing nearby because you'd want to protect um, your domesticated chicory from getting cross-pollinated by that. There's also cow parsnips and as well as domesticated parsnips. Um, if you are in Texas, then there is the wild Texas buffalo gourd, um, which can cross-pollinate with various members of the uh, squash family. And there's also wild asparagus. So there's just a, a couple that I could think of that would, um, they're kind of weedy relatives. But you, you want to know um, if you have these kind of um, weed relatives nearby because you should be cautious of it especially if it's growing close enough like let's say like where I lived in the UK for example Queen Anne's lace grew all over in the hedgerows and when I lived out in the country I could never save the carrot seed because it was always crossing with the Queen Anne's lace but if like where I'm living here in Utah, there's not a lot of Queen Anne's lace that's growing nearby. Um, in fact, I don't even see any of my um, neighbors growing it as an ornamental flower in their gardens. Um, so I am less concerned about protecting the flowers of my carrots um, from pollinators because... I, I think there's there's a lower risk of um, them cross-pollinating with something that would make them kind of horrible to eat or inedible later. So let's talk a little bit about methods of pollination um, because there's a couple of different methods that plants pollinate. So pollinators, let's talk about those first up. So pollinators can visit not only uh, your plants that are flowering but other relatives nearby. Um, and you kind of want to know um, what the pollinators are in your garden. So for example, like I know in my yard because I'm always out there that there is wasps and honeybees and orchard bees mostly that are doing the pollinating there's not a lot of butterflies um but when i visited a garden in pennsylvania i saw these gigantic like bumblebees i mean these suckers were huge they were absolutely massive and they were all over this garden like doing the bulk of the pollination so you know that garden in pennsylvania's pollinators very different from the pollinators in my garden but get out into your garden and see what is there and what is doing that pollination because when you know what your pollinators are you know what to look for and what to be careful of now another method of pollination that's pretty common is by wind and um, there's actually quite a few plants that you'll probably recognize um, that are pollinated by wind so corn beets spinach uh, rye oats barley walnuts pecans and even swiss chard are all pollinated by the wind so pollen is carried for quite a long way often miles to fertilize the plants and uh, equally some plants don't need either pollinators or wind to pollinate them and they're known as self-pollinators so having an understanding of how your plant pollinates what it can pollinate with and then um you know a little bit about how the the pollen actually moves to pollinate the plant so kind of you know the birds and the bees but about plants reproducing that all comes into play when we start talking about seed saving and understanding um you know that even self-pollinated plants can actually be cross-pollinated. Um, that's how new varieties and this genetic diversity occurs is, you know, you get a, a pollinator that was that was lucky. It had some pollen from a different plant on there and that particular flower was pollinated and then a gardener decided to, to plant those seeds by chance and, wow, this is a new colour or this, is, this looks a bit different or, you know, something happened and then we start to save that seed that's how that variety um began now um 
I really, really recommend getting out into the garden when you've got things flowering and taking a really close look. Um, having a look at the flower and figuring out what parts are what. So flowers have male and female organs, right? The pollen is the male, um, you know, genetic material that is then passed through the female reproductive organs to the ovaries, which house the seeds, right? So that pollen grain has to pass through and then it fertilizes with those seeds and then the seeds are able to mature and develop and that's what we then save. Now, botanically speaking, perfect flowers are those with both female and male organs and sometimes these plant parts are really easy to see and you should become familiar with you know things like um what the stamens are or what the anthers are so what the female parts are and what the male parts are because sometimes it's easy to see and sometimes it isn't and the more that you kind of get um into your garden take a look the more that you'll be able to spot some of these although um i am thinking of doing a, a youtube webinar on on this subject so i can show you examples out of um my garden so you can kind of see and start to become a little bit more familiar um with different plants and how they look so you can start to get an understanding of this so if that's something that you'd be interested in let me know in the Facebook group and I will set that up um, so we can we can talk all about seed saving which is one of the fun things that we get to do in the garden now definitely take you know when it comes to the garden you know get in there take off some petals see what you can see can you spot which um, part is the female reproductive organs can you see where the ovaries is or can you see the male anthers you know where the pollen's being held it's actually a really cool thing to do um you know if you've got kids as well um and uh, the more that you get out and see these plants and the flowers that they're formed the more that you start to see these kind of cool mechanisms that nature has generated um especially with those self-pollinating um plants so tomatoes really interesting right so tomato flowers are also a perfect flower um but they have this kind of cool thing that where their anthers so that's the male part they're fused together and they've kind of created this cone around the female stigma and this is a method that the plant has created to protect it from being fertilized by another flower's pollen but sometimes tomato flowers have a stigma that just pokes out a little bit from this cone and these flowers can actually be fertilized by another tomato plant's pollen so if you got out in your garden you spotted that you had this like extended stigma then you would probably start to think hmm i might need to take precautions in protecting these flowers from being pollinated by you know a, another variety so maybe you'd want to think about using a blossom bag or um, maybe caging it and covering it um, with uh, frost fleece or floating row cover or something to keep the insects out um, to prevent those from being cross-pollinated with another tomato variety now there are plants known as outcrossers and um, these are the opposite of self-pollinators because outcrossers are most often fertilized by cross-pollination. So um, cucumbers and squash are uh, definitely outcrossing uh, varieties and um, you can sometimes tell an outcrosser because flowers are very often bright they're showy um, they're to draw in the pollinators now curcubits are interesting because they're a monoecious plant um, they have both male and female flowers that are on the same plant um, and you can usually tell which is which because a female flower has like a swelling behind the petals so um, it's easy to see in cucumbers because it looks like a little mini cucumber behind the petals um, or it might look like a, a little mini squash behind um, the flower whereas the male flower doesn't have that um, male flowers often uh, produce earlier on the plant um, and the female uh, plants come in a little bit later but um, most of the squash family and watermelons um, 
operate in this way so they have both male and female flowers on the same plant now corn is also an outcrosser plant and it is also monoecious uh, so it has male and female flowers on the same plant so the silks are actually the female flowers and each silk strand is a stigma and a style that are leading to an ovary and that ovary becomes a corn kernel which is pretty cool and the tassels at the very top of the plant that's the male flowers and um, they they shed pollen over a number of days and those um, silks on the female flowers are um, receptive to pollen over a number of days and there's a lot of um, you know silks that are in there if you've ever grown corn before there's a lot that's there because there's each one of those um, kernels that you see on an ear of corn each one of those silks was pollinated to be able to create that so that's pretty cool now there's also outcrossing plants that have either a male plant or a female plant and these are known as dioecious plants and spinach is a good example so um, spinach is either all male flowers or all female flowers and the plants can only be fertilized from the pollen from the other plants and uh, you can usually tell which the um, male plant is because it's the one with all the pollen on it now some plants that are outcrossers have what's known um, as self incompatibility and um, not all outcrossers um, are you know these plants that have either male or female flowers or male or female plants you can get some outcrossers with perfect flowers now the brassica family do this um swiss chard and beets um are also perfect flowers um although in swiss chard and beets they're teeny weeny um and they're pollinated by wind whereas the brassica family are pollinated by insects but the interesting thing with these plants is that they have like a genetic mechanism that means that they cannot be pollinated by their own pollen so they have to be pollinated by pollen from other plants which is pretty neat right and understanding how your plant is not only pollinated what it can be pollinated with and all all of those things you can start to think okay what are the things that i'm going to need to do in my garden to be able to save this variety of plant for this year and for some things you're going to have to um, come up with some methods to prevent cross-pollination and these methods are called isolation methods so let's dig in and talk about them now the first one is timing so growing multiple varieties of a species that mature at different times so you could grow an early or a late variety to avoid cross-pollination now timing could be that you're growing those varieties to avoid cross-pollination with a nearby variety so let's say that your neighboring farmer who lives less than a mile away is growing corn and he grows corn really early every year and you know that because you buy it by i don't know the 6th of june let's say hypothetically right so you decide that you're going to grow a later maturing variety uh, to save the seed from because you know by the 6th of june that farmer john there has his corn has already been pollinated because he's selling it so that's that's a good technique to use um, and consider another technique for timing is rotating varieties grown each year and many home gardeners can save seed from different types of plants so um, let's take biennials so those are ones which flower and produce seed in their second year so they have to be left in the ground over winter and go through a process known as vernalization and a lot of home gardeners are able to save these without too much 
worry about cross-pollination from their neighbours because there's not as many home gardeners who are saving seed uh, from biennials. So biennials are things like uh, parsnips, carrots, beets, chard, the brassicas, right? They're all usually pulled out of the ground to eat rather than being left in for seed. So you've got a, a good opportunity to um, save seed from things, especially if there's not a lot of home gardeners near you. Another method of um, isolation is by distance um, and this is one that you'll often see when you start looking into seed saving so growing multiple varieties of a plant species but separating them by a distance and this distance can really vary depending on the species um, some plants are separated by a few feet others are separated by miles so for example Heirloom tomatoes need between 10 or four, 10 to 40 feet, depending on the variety and whether it's got that stigma that is extended past the fused anthers or whether it's just straight up a nice open flower where the anthers can be seen. There's different, different um, uh, flowering things that happen with different varieties. Beans need about 10 feet between varieties to maintain that varietal purity. Cabbage, well one to two miles between other members of the Brassicarella Aceae family. And carrots also need one to two miles between other domesticated carrots or also those wild carrots or Queen Anne's lace. Beets or Swiss chard need about one to three miles of space because they're wind pollinated and they've got very light um, pollen that travels for a long time or a long distance. Now, there's also physical barriers, um, which is using a, a method to prevent insects from getting in and pollinating or methods to stop wind moving pollen onto the receptive female parts. So things like using blossom bags, like those organza mesh bags used for party favours or weddings, um, those kind of things. Or you can just buy blossom bags. Um, other physical barriers could be taping flowers closed before hand pollination. So taping them shut before um, they have a chance to open. Um, isolation cages or tents. So they're typically made from floating row cover material or a specific insect screen to help keep the pollinators out. Of course, you want to make sure that there's no rips or tears in there where uh, pollinators can get in but large tents will have um, usually have things like leaf cutter bees or other pollinators introduced into the tent to do the pollination um, or they could be pollinated by by hand um, another method is things like shoot and tassel bags for corn and these methods can be a lot more labor intensive for home gardeners but the advantage is that you can grow more varieties in the space that you have however you would need to consider having more space or a bigger garden because you're going to need that to be able to grow a larger number of plants so you want to be growing a, a number of plants of each variety to save the seeds from to maintain a healthy genetic diversity and reduce what's known as inbreeding depression now hand pollination is actually a method of isolation for the seed variety so you want to make sure that you mark the flowers to know which you hand pollinated with a tape or ribbon so you know which they are but you don't need to hand pollinate everything you could just do a few flowers from the plants that you want to save seed from and make sure that you're saving seed from a number of those different plants but you can hand pollinate a lot of different plants including corn squash cucumbers melons watermelon okra there's lots of different ones that you can do now another method of isolation is growing only one so planting only one variety per species now this isolation method is really great for small garden spaces and is ideal for beginners right because it can get really overwhelming as a beginner like oh my gosh there's all these things that i've got to think about like how I, I don't know what I'm doing and that's okay. Just start with planting only one variety per species that you're going to be growing. So, you know, maybe only planting um, spaghetti squash or maybe you do um, a spaghetti squash and a, um, let's say, um, a butternut squash, right? That you've got two different species there but only one variety of each maybe you decide 
that you're going to do only one variety of lettuce, one variety of onion or one variety of okra and one variety of eggplant or one tomato variety, right? You're still going to be able to save seed from a number of different um, plant types, right? So, you know, eggplant or cucumber or whatever it is, right? But only one variety of those plants. Um, so that does, does mean that you can um, concentrate only on one, which is good if you're um, kind of strapped for time and this is kind of new for you. But it also means that you can um, allow a number of plants of that variety to go to seed and save the seeds from them, um, which means that you're going to have a... Um, a healthy uh, seed population so that's kind of helpful now let's talk about how many plants right because you need to know a plant's population size for a healthy seed stock and the number of plants does vary depending on the species so let's talk about inbreeding depression because i've mentioned that a couple of times and inbreeding depression is low genetic variability due to the mating of plant individuals that are closely related and too genetically similar and um, seeds need to be saved from a number of different plants um, and fruits or pods of a variety. So if you're growing purple Cherokee tomatoes, you want to be growing a number of purple Cherokee tomato plants and you want to be saving seed from a number of the fruits on each of those plants to help have a a representative sampling of the population that you are growing. This helps um, things keep healthy because there's some signs of inbreeding depression and they include loss of vigor, loss of fertility, and that's often seen as fewer flowers or fewer numbers of seeds harvested in, let's say, pea pods or, um, you know, when you're opening up your tomatoes, right? You're like, oh, this seems to be less seeds than what there was before. Um, other signs of inbreeding depression include poor germination. Your seeds are not very good quality. Um, a low yield is often seen. And uh, your plants often succumb to environmental stresses very rapidly. So this is all kind of driven by your population size. And it really does differ by species. Some species need large growing populations to grow healthy. Um, so growing um, self-pollinating varieties need fewer individuals to save the seed from whereas outcrossers need a lot more individuals so outcrossing plants are more susceptible to um, inbreeding depression um, especially the brassica family and um, you know it, it can be difficult in a smaller garden I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it and um, you know if you are looking up the requirements for a healthy population size um, especially something like corn it's like 200 plants um, for a seed and that seems like way too much for a small home gardener I mean I'm looking at, at my garden I'm thinking man if I'm trying to grow 200 corn plants where would I put that? And I have quite a large garden. Um, so I can only imagine if you've got a, a small, small backyard, like what you could do for that. Now, there's a couple of things that you could try. You could try growing as much as you can in the space that you have available um, for growing that plant, right? I'm not saying convert your whole backyard for growing corn, right? If you've only, if you only normally grow one bed for it, then only grow one bed for it and save, save as much seed as you can from that bed right maybe not eat all of it um you know try and save a bit more seed than what you eat so try growing as much of it as you can saving the seeds and if you notice signs of inbreeding depression when you grow it out um and you may not see this immediately you may not see it after the second year you may not see it after the third but you might start to notice it after the fourth or fifth year and if you do notice those signs of inbreeding depression then what you would want to do is try introducing plants of the same variety from another source like a seed swap so you get that same variety um in a seed swap or you purchase it from somewhere and then you grow those out along with the seeds that you've saved and um, then allow them to pollinate save that seed again and what that's going to do is to um, it's going to reinvigorate that variety by introducing some additional genetics and that's that's really what we're wanting um, to avoid 
when it comes to that inbreeding depression is reducing the genetics down you're kind of narrowing things down and we don't want that we want uh, a nice wide range of genetics which is why um, they recommend to have a larger population size so let's talk about some considerations for your garden because you need to know um, a few different things to to consider for your garden right and um if you are planning to save seed then we now know that you're going to need a, a number of plants to um be in that garden space and um some of those plants need to be in the garden longer than what they would if you were growing them to eat right um so let's let's say um you've got some onions growing for example they are biennials and they need to be in the ground over winter they need to go through that vernalization period to trigger flowering the next year um, biennials may actually need to be dug up in fall and protected in harsh winter areas and then replanted out in the spring warmer areas that don't actually freeze or have a winter may need to have the biennials dug up and placed in a cold area for a period of time to trigger that vernalization so you need to take that into consideration when you're planning your garden like what is it that you want to be saving seed for and how long does it really need to be in that garden space because you're not going to be able to um, pull it out and plant something else in that space and um, because you've got to allow it to go through that full growth cycle so definitely account um, for the space your seed saver plants are going to take in the garden and uh, you also need to know when to harvest for seed so lettuce that's normally pulled out of the garden when it starts bolting you would need to be leaving that in the garden for it to flower and produce the seed um, you may also get lower yields um, of fruit and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that so um Let's talk about knowing when to, to harvest for seeds. So some plants are mature enough to save the seed when the fruit is good for eating. So tomatoes, really good example of that. And some of the squashes, like the winter squashes. Um, other plants need their fruits to remain on the plant way past uh, when they're good to eat. They usually like turn a funny color. They look super dodgy. It doesn't, doesn't look anything right. Um, and that's because the seeds take longer to mature and by the time that the seeds are ready the the fruit is no longer good to eat um like peppers go through a color change and they usually stop at like a dark red color and that's when um the seeds are usually ready for saving now as those plants are growing um often what will happen is that you will have lower yields of edible fruit because what happens is your plant is putting all their energy into the seeds and often when fruits set and mature the production of flowers and other fruits is way less on a plant so you may actually need to be planting more plants um, to grow to help keep that seed population healthy so that's something that you you want to consider like cucumbers are a really good example of that um, also beans right um, if you're harvesting beans to eat or cucumbers to eat right one of the key things that people tell you is to keep picking them keep picking them because the more that you're picking them the more the plant is pushing out flowers because it's wanting to have them pollinated so it'll produce seed but the minute that you start allowing things to form seeds like uh, drying beans or pole beans for example um, you know your plant is putting all that energy into those seed production rather than into flowers so you'll actually have a, a smaller yield that happens let's talk a little bit about some growing positions um, you want to be planning carefully where you're going to be growing multiple varieties of a species so you want to be uh, planning in space between those varieties for isolation by distance if you can in your garden right some some gardens are just too small and you know you're only going to be able to grow one variety but also plan in space for your isolation barriers like cages or tents. You want to be able to comfortably get in and out of them and around them. 
be able to do repairs check that you haven't got like uh, holes that have been formed or anything like that and you may even need to um, account for getting your isolation cages and barriers in place um, where your plants are going to be able to still be watered and things so take that into account and one of the biggest tips that I can give you is planning 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 like take time to plan and map out your garden um, it is really helpful to know things like days to maturity your isolation distances and the population sizes that are needed um, I'm going to put a link to um, a really good seed saving resource from the organic uh, seed alliance that has a super helpful table at the end it's got population sizes and isolation distances in there um, and also there's a really great book called um, The Seed Garden, The Art and Practice of Seed Saving that is a fantastic resource for new seed savers and it's got information on there about the population sizes and all that good stuff as well. Um, but, you know, take time to plan your population size. Like, you know, if... if um, I mean, a lot of the population sizes are, are 80 plants um, in the seed saving resource, which... It's actually quite difficult for even somebody with a large garden to to grow but maybe you could be growing um at least five plants um maybe you could stretch it out to 10 plants if you're going to be growing with intensive gardening techniques right there's there's some cool things that we can do but one of the the nice things about planning it on paper and mapping out your garden means that you can plan it and change it and you know make all kinds of mistakes and you know throw it away if you don't like it um but you can you can plan it on paper in terms of like actually walking the distance right how big is the space that you have you know what can you actually comfortably grow in that space right so you know do you have enough space to be separating beans by 10 feet yes do you have space to separate tomatoes by 40 feet no can you separate tomatoes by 20 feet yes so you might be able to figure out some varieties that you can be growing um that are going to enable a smaller um distance um, of isolation or you could grow them closer together with some isolation cages or using blossom bags and hand pollinating so there's lots of things that we can be doing and I definitely recommend like sitting down and, and planning your garden um, to be able to have a lot of successful seed saving as well as being able to grow edible food one of the other things that I have seen people do is have a different part of the garden like so if you've if you've got a backyard and you've got a, a normal like food production garden try growing in a different area of your yard just for seed saving and just kind of dedicate that as an area where you're you're growing things for um, production of seeds and you know whether you hand pollinate it or you use those kind of physical barriers in place whatever you decide to do I want you to know that seed saving should be fun and it should be um, an exciting part of your gardening journey and being able to kind of get excited about saving seeds and saving money and growing things year after year it's a really great project to do um, with family members as well as yourself so I really want to know from you what is it that you are excited to save the seed from from your garden this year let me know in the Facebook group and let me know if you would like this as a webinar with some pictures and stuff on it as well I'm more than happy to do that. Um, until next time, I hope that your garden grows beautifully and I will see you all next week.